Amen. Good morning, Three Rivers. Let me just say real quickly uh, that as we enter this time of Advent, it's a good reminder that Christmas is a season of giving. Uh, God has so richly given to us. He loved the world so much that He gave His own Son. And this is just a good reminder for us that we want to give back in return. And so just a reminder for our members that we have an offering box in the back. If you're a guest today, that box is not for you. Uh, but part of our worship as members of this church is to give generously uh, to not just so that, that, that the church has money, but so for your own blessing and your own joy that you get to give what God has graciously given to you. So I just want to remind you of that, uh, that this is a season of giving and uh, that's part of our worship service. Another part of our worship service is that we hear the word preached and Today our passage is in Isaiah chapter 64. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I hope you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Isaiah 64. Beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 64, verse 1. And three rivers, this is the Word of God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
And I pray what Isaiah prayed in Isaiah 64. Oh, that You would rend the heavens and come down. Come and be with us today by the presence of Your Holy Spirit with great power. In Jesus' name, Amen. Has there ever been a time in your life when you felt like God was hiding from you? Have you ever felt like your prayers were hitting a brick ceiling? They never even made it outside of the the bedroom. How do you respond in that moment when it seems as if God is not listening? Or that He no longer cares? Or that He has forgotten about you? I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the prophet Isaiah. And for decades, you have been warning your nation that destruction is coming because of their sin. You have watched your people fall into rampant idolatry, sexual immorality, and unbreakable hardness of heart. And not only that, but as you watch your country is decimated by the vast armies of the nation of Assyria. And your friends and your family are carried off to a foreign land. And you get to come home. And maybe you don't even get to come home. If you had a cell phone in those days, maybe you get on Facebook or Twitter and you see that someone has posted a picture of your hometown. And you find that the old church building where you grew up, the temple has been destroyed. And it lies in rubble. And the vast majority of those who once lived in your community are now either dead or living in slavery to an Assyrian king. How would you pray? How would you pray? What would you say? Perhaps you would say something like Isaiah would say in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. When we read this in verse 1, it seems like Isaiah is asking the Lord, come down now and make things right. But the way it's translated, it's actually past tense. Oh Lord, that you would have rend the heavens and come down. In other words, Lord, if you had acted before, none of this would have ever happened. It could have been so different. Isaiah is not simply hoping for God to act now. He is reflecting on a tragic past of what could have been. Have you been there? Praying and asking the Lord and recognizing that if the Lord had acted sooner, perhaps you wouldn't be in the situation you're in right now. Isaiah knows God and he thinks that he knows God's heart. And it is hard for him in this moment to understand why God would let a situation get so desperate without having done anything about it. And while it may sound in Isaiah 64 that Isaiah is hopeless, I want you to see this morning that his prayer actually reveals the complete opposite of hopelessness. This is a passage of Hope And Isaiah's hope is rooted in God's unchanging faithfulness. Isaiah 64 is a confident prayer for deliverance. A prayer by a believing remnant of people. A people who were always faithful even when the rest of the nation was faithless. And so what the way we structure this passage today in sections, three sections of four verses. In verses 1 to 4... God's people are asking Him to intervene in a powerful way. And yet before He does that, in verses 5 to 8, 
They have to acknowledge their own complete sinfulness. But in verses 9 to 12, they come to God as their father and their creator and ask him to show mercy and grace to them. This is a prayer similar to Isaiah 53 in that you have an exiled people, a people that have been ripped out of their land, living in slavery, and they confess their sin to the Lord and ask him to intervene. But if God's going to intervene, if God's going to come, He will not come if you are still in your sin. And your sin is unconfessed. If God were to come, would it really be good for you if your righteousness is like filthy rags and we have become like an unclean thing? So let's look at this passage. And what I want us to do is, as we look at the prophets, I think it's good to have to read it with different glasses. We read it first of all to see what did it mean in Isaiah's day. But then we have to take off those glasses and put on some gospel lenses to see how does this passage apply to us and how does the gospel come to bear. So what do we see here? The very first point in verses 1 to 4, as we enter into this Advent season, God's people here are looking for a demonstration of God's power. The people of God desire the direct intervention of God. And so in verses 1 to 2, this is what they're longing for, a great deliverance. This is a national lament. It is the people weeping about what could have been if God had intervened on their behalf. They're asking God to intervene in a spectacular way. Look at verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Literally, rip the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. Like when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil. Make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations might tremble at your presence. In other words, shock your enemies into facing you. Lord, make the nations shake in their boots. Make the mountains quake with your presence like forests that catch fire. And when fire makes a pot to boil. When he says rend here in verse 1, this is an implied comparison of an opening of a curtain. The heavens are seen as a curtain where God has been hiding behind them. And Isaiah is saying, Lord, how long will you hide in the heavens? Rip the heavens And come down. Jim mentioned this. This is language of the day of the Lord. Prophecies in Joel and Amos. And of the Mount Sinai experience. experience Where the mountains here poetically are obstacles to God moving. Make the mountains quake. There's nothing that can stop you from accomplishing your purposes. This imagery shows that when God makes His presence known, the object on which God moves has no choice but to tremble. When God moves, when He steps down on the earth, the mountains have no choice but to quake. They have no choice but to move. And He gives this imagery here in verse 2. The same way that when God moves on a mountain, it's similar to the way that when fire uh, lights up a a old dried up brushwood. It has no choice but to kindle. When you take lukewarm water and put it over hot water or put it over a fire, the water has no choice but to boil. But God's purpose here is not just to make water boil and to make wood burn. His purpose at the end of verse 2 is to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. 
If God were to come among these people and apply His fire to their unclean lips and their hardened hearts, then the brushwood of their lives would burst into flames and the lukewarm water of their souls would break into a raging boil. And the result would be that God's adversaries would come to know about the name and the character of the Lord. What is the purpose of this display of power? It's that the name of the Lord might be known. What is Isaiah pleading here? He is pleading that God would break into their situation. And the question now is, where is God? Isaiah looks at the nations around him. He looks at an Assyrian king who is gloating over his victory. An Assyrian king who in Isaiah chapter 10 boasts and says, look what I have done. I am like fire and the nations are like wax that melts in my presence. And the Assyrian king is very proud and arrogant that he has done these things. Where is God? The sins of God's people has defeated them and Israel's enemies are gloating. Is this what God wants? Although God is other than His creation, He is holy and He is unique and He is set apart, Isaiah recognizes that God could break in at any time and make things right. And so they're asking God, God, please move. Please open the heavens. Please come. Please visit. It's not just if you had done it, but now I'm asking you, come again, please, and make things right. And what does Isaiah do in verses 3 and 4? He remembers. And he reminds God as if God needed to be reminded. He uses the word and reminds God, look what you have done in the past. You have done this before. You can do it again. Look at verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. Verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. The people are remembering how God has acted and did amazing things for them in the past. The word awesome here is not the word awesome as we would describe it to describe a great movie or a championship football game. When we say that was awesome, we mean something completely different from Isaiah when he says the Lord came and did awesome things. He literally did terrible things, fearful things. Things things that inspired awe and fear and reverence. These awesome things that Isaiah is mentioning refers back to the book of Exodus when God reveals Himself on top of Mount Sinai. Now I want you to, I'm going to read this from Exodus 19 and I want you to hear about this worship service. Okay? Exodus 19 verse 16. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. 
Now I want you to imagine you're one of the Israelites and you are standing at the foot of the mountain and God has told you, if you cross this line, you will die. And you look up at this mountain and the holiness of God descends and it's full of lightning and thunder and smoke and fire. Do you think in that moment that you would approach that worship service casually? No, right? You would not just say, well, what, how was that game last night, right? No, you're not talking about a stupid football game in that moment. You're thinking, if I cross this line, I die. My eyes have seen the holiness of God and I, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything wrong in His presence. I'm trembling. There's fear of this holy God. And I want you to see how the people responded. Next chapter, Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, "Um, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. And so Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The purpose of God revealing himself on that mountain, the righteous display of his holiness and his glory was not meant just to make them fear him, but to Cause them to fear Him and reverence Him in such a way that they would not sin. God wanted His people to be holy as He is holy. And for the first time, God broke in on His people in a terrifying way that they were not expecting. You can imagine, I mean, they've seen the ten plagues, they've seen God save them uh, at the Red Sea, but that was their parents' generation, and now they're standing here, and they're looking, uh, they've just been saved, and, and they're watching what God has done, and now God reveals Himself on this mountain, and they tremble in fear. But now in Isaiah, the people are waiting, but God's doing nothing. And yet, the fact that God came the first time unexpectedly gives Isaiah hope that he could suddenly burst on again. God, if you've done it before, you can do it again. And do it in my generation. Let my people see what you did back then so that my people now will not continue to live in sin, but will be moved to repentance and to walk in holiness. And in all of that, they recognized that the work of the Lord was unique. Verse 4 says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. I'm sorry, verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a, a God besides you. You make mountains quake when you show up. You act for those who wait for him. This is the theme of Isaiah. One of the great themes that God is faithful But He's unique. He's holy. 
We see it first in Isaiah chapter 6, where angels are singing one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. He's unique, church. He's different. He's completely and utterly outside of everything else in existence. He is the Holy One and there is no one like Him. This is the great theme of Isaiah. And I'll just give you a few examples. In Isaiah 43, verse 11, he says, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is is no savior. Next chapter, Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. He is unique. He is holy. We are not repres- we are not worshiping just one of many gods today. We are, we are not going down the buffet of deities to choose which God we're going to serve today. There is only one. He is the one true God. He's the maker of heaven and earth and the whole earth is filled with His glory and the holy angels cannot look at Him in the face but they have to cover their eyes and sing one to another. He is holy. He is different. And when Isaiah stands in his presence, he stops pointing the fingers at everybody else like he does in chapters 1 to 5 saying woe to the drunkards and woe to the murderers and woe to the idolaters and woe to the sexual immorality. He he stops pointing the finger at everybody else and when he sees the holiness of God he starts pointing it at himself and says woe is me for I'm lost and undone for my eyes have seen the King. When we see the King in His glory, it will produce a godly reverence and a desire to flee from sin and the wrath to come. And that's what Isaiah is praying for for his people. God, let us see that You are unique and You're holy. And what we see, what makes God unique at the end of verse 4, is that He acts for those who wait for Him. In other words, this God is faithful to His covenant. And so they're living in expectation. God, deliver your people. Please act on our behalf. So first we've seen that God's people are asking for God to intervene on their behalf. And now, verses 5 to 9, we see a second point. That before God will act on their behalf, the people of God acknowledge their unworthiness. They acknowledge their sin. I want you to look at verse 5. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. I want to stop here and just point out that in verse 4, Isaiah says that God meets those who wait for Him. And then in verse 5, he explains what waiting for the Lord is. He says, you meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. So which is it? Does God meet those who wait for Him or those who work for Him? The answer is that it's both. That waiting means to be working in righteousness. In other words, waiting on the Lord is is never passive. It is always active. And some of us need to hear this this morning, that waiting on the Lord is to joyfully work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is to work righteousness, which is to remember God and His ways. 
To wait for the Lord this morning is not for us just to sit around and say, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. It's to open our eyes and to see that there is work to be done. There's a mission to be accomplished. There's domains to be engaged. There's gifts that need to be used. There's people that need to be served. And as we walk in obedience by faith and walk in in obedience by the Lord and what He's called us to, living the covenant life, committing to community with each other, committing our future to God's hands in our daily life, we will be truly waiting on on the Lord. And as we actively wait on Him, He will meet us. This is the promise of Isaiah 64. If you are not actively obeying Jesus this morning through faith, but instead you're passively sitting around waiting for God to move on your behalf, you may be waiting for something, but you're not waiting on the Lord. And so beginning in verse 5, the prophet Isaiah acknowledges that God champions the cause of the righteous. But there's a problem. The people who belong to God have sinned against Him. I want you to look at the second half of verse 5. This is where the confession of sin comes. It says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say, Lord, we sinned and then you became angry at us. That's one thing, which is true, that sin brings on the wrath of God. But that's not what Isaiah says here. It's actually worse. Instead, he says, God, you were already angry with sin. Your wrath was already kindled against the ungodly. And we knew that and we sinned anyways. You were angry and we sinned. Not only that, but the next line says, Lord, not only did we sin when we knew you were angry, but we've been sinning for a really long time. Verse 5, in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? What we see here is that we cannot produce enough righteousness to appease the wrath of God. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There is none of us in here who are righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what makes it so bad is that even now we know what His wrath is against sinners and we still sin anyways. And while we may take the gospel for granted today that yes, I am forgiven and God no longer holds my sin against me, salvation was not a foregone conclusion for Israel at this time. Which is why he asked the question, can any of us be saved after we have sinned so much? Sometimes I think we do take the gospel for granted. And we say, well, God's going to forgive me anyways. So I can do what I want to do. But Isaiah recognizes his sin is much more serious than that. How can we be saved? God was angry for the sin of the nation. And the only hope now was for them to plead for forgiveness. Had they gone too far? Can we be saved? 
In verses 6 and 7, he confesses their unworthiness. And he, it gets worse. Verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Verse 6 is the central part of this confession. He uses language from Leviticus and says we have become unclean. In other words, we have become like a leper. Someone who's unfit for worship. We can't come into your presence. We can't walk into the temple now because we are ritually and ceremonially and spiritually unclean. Not only that, not only is our have we done bad things that make us unclean, but even our righteousness, even our good works are like polluted rags. They're like minstrel cloths. They're, they're polluted. They separate us from worship. That's literally what the language means here. We are barred from worship. Sometimes I think we need to remember that it's not just our sin that separates us from God. It's our righteousness that separates us from God too. It's not just, that, it's not just your disobedience that kindles the wrath of God. It's your obedience that is flawed. And to think that your obedience could somehow make you right with Him. It is all unclean. And it all separates us from the Lord. But this is what the recognition of sinfulness looks like. This is what a broken and contrite heart is. This is true repentance. That you not only turn from your wickedness, but you also turn from your own moral effort and say, God, I have nothing to offer you today. All I have is Christ. And according to verse 6, at the end of verse 6, Isaiah knows that their own sin sweeps them away like the wind sweeps the leaf away. Notice here that the wind is compared to our iniquities. Like a leaf we have dried up. Like a leaf in autumn that has dried up and died. And the wind carries it away. Our iniquities have carried us away. It's interesting that Isaiah compares our sin with the wind. Just as the dead leaf is helpless before the wind, so the human spirit becomes captive to its sins and is no more able to choose its course than a leaf. God is the giver of life and those who cuts, whose sins cut them off from Him as the source will eventually find themselves dried up and blown away. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 takes the confession even deeper. There is no one who calls upon your name. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold of you. Not only have they sinned, but even worse, they don't care. They're indifferent. There's no one who calls upon you. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold of you. The evidence of a hopeless nation living in sin is that no one is even concerned enough about the situation to ask for help. They are so sunk into spiritual lethargy and apathy that they can't even rouse themselves. They don't care. It is a dangerous place for you to be in when you are living in sin and you don't care. And why is all this happening? Why does no one care? 
I want you to look at the last half of verse 7. Got to deal with this verse. For. That means the reason these people are living in sin and don't care is because you, Lord, have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Why is this happening? It is because the all-powerful God is not moving His people to repentance. For you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. I want you to understand something about God's judgment on the nation. When we see wickedness in the world and we see wickedness in our own country, God hiding Himself from us does not bring about the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God when God hides Himself from a nation. This is is the argument of Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Paul tells the Romans that the world claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what does God do? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. It is the judgment of God when he removes his gracious hand, his sin restraining hand and allows people to do what they want to do, which leads them to judgment. That is the greatest judgment of God. And so in their confession of sin, this is a plea for grace that they would be delivered from bondage. God, this is why we need you to break open from the heavens. Because if you don't move and you don't rouse these people, they they will never repent. They will never trust you. They will never confess their sins. This is why Paul tells Timothy that repentance is a gift from God. You do not rouse yourself up to repentance. It is a gracious act of a loving father. Which is exactly what Isaiah says in verse 8, is it not? Why would he, why would Isaiah say, Lord, rouse yourself, bring us to repentance? Verse 8. But Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. The only appeal that Isaiah can make, the only basis he has to ask God to be merciful is that The relationship he has with God is that he is our father. The word father, you have two images here, father and potter. The father gives us the image of a covenant relationship. And God is the potter and as their maker stresses their submission to him. You're the maker. You're the creator of heaven and earth. And we submit to you. We're not God. You are. And you're our father and our potter. And we are the clay. And so while they acknowledge their sin, they confess their sin, but they also appeal to the close relationship they have with the Lord. How much He has invested in them and what plans He has for the nation. When we call God Father and Potter, it is an expression of submission to His will. We're going to accept His plan for our lives, and so they pray for forgiveness and intervention. We grew up at our church singing that song. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. 
while I am waiting, yielded and still. That's the prayer of Isaiah here. Lord, we're waiting for you. And we need you to break in on us. And if you don't act, we will all perish. But you are the Father and you're the potter and we are the clay and we submit to you. And it's on that basis we get to verses 9 through 12 where the people of God ask God for divine grace. God, be gracious to us. We need you to give us favor. This passage closes with an impassioned appeal for God to look favorably on His people, forgetting their sins and remembering that they are His people. Look at verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all Your people. The prayer is that God will not remember their sins. And we know in the Bible that remembering is not just God forgetting when he doesn't remember our sins it doesn't mean that he gets holy amnesia and he just forgets things the word remembrance here means to act upon so when god when when isaiah says god remember our sins no more and god says i will remember your sins no more god is saying i will choose to never act upon your sin ever again and i will never bring it up against you this is The beauty of grace and God's forgiveness. When God forgives, it means He will never bring up the issues of your past ever, ever again. People may have trouble forgetting. And other people may make it difficult for them to forget. But if we confess our sins to God, God will never mention it or hold it against you again. And so the plea for them to look upon them. Look upon us, Lord. Look at your people. Behold, look at us. We're your people. This is the idea of God, turn your face towards us again. You have been looking away from us, but now turn it towards us and look with grace and compassion. Lord, look at your temple. Look at verse 10. Not only that, don't just look at your people, but look at your place of worship. Verse 10, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. And our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. Isaiah is not blaming God for their sin. He's putting confidence in the sovereignty of God. And it's on the basis of that relationship of father and potter that he appeals to God's mercy. You could summarize this prayer a little differently. What he just said in that prayer of looking to the temple, it sounds something like this. God, don't be too angry with us. Don't keep a permanent account of wrongdoing. Keep in mind, please, Lord, we are your people, all of us. And your holy cities, they're all ghost towns. Zion is a ghost town. Jerusalem is a field of weeds. And our holy and beautiful temple which Solomon built and the nations would come to watch and they would be filled with your praises. It's been burned down with fire. And Lord, in the face of all of this, are you going to sit there unmoved? God, aren't you going to say something? Haven't you made us miserable long enough? And so if you're in Israel and you're reading this passage... It ends with no solution. The chapter ends not with a statement of faith, but with a question. Verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? 
and the curtain closes. And for 700 years, the question still remains, will God restrain Himself? Will God not act on behalf of His people? And it's at this moment as we as Christians, we have the the beauty of, of looking back. And now we can take off our glasses in the Old Testament. Take them off for just a moment. There's another set of glasses we need to put on. It's these gospel lenses. These Christ-centered glasses. I want to ask this question now as we look at this passage again. With new glasses, with a new perspective. Has this question been answered? Will God restrain Himself? Will He keep silent? We have the benefit this morning at the beginning of Advent to look back into time and to see how God intervened for His people. Would God continue to leave His people in their sin? Will He leave us in our sin? And so if we quickly walk back through this passage with gospel glasses on, we're going to see that God did powerfully act in a way that no one could ever have predicted. And Isaiah prays again in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And 700 years after Isaiah prayed these words, the curtain of heaven would open for us and the Lord would come down. For the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But wait a minute, verse 2 says that the mountains might quake at your presence. The mountains did not quake at His presence when He arrived. He came unannounced and undercover, born to a teenage girl in a little town called Bethlehem, barely a blip on the religious map. And yet his name was known to his adversaries as Herod tried to have him killed. And the nations would not yet tremble at his presence. But Mary was given the promise by Gabriel that he would be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father, David. And in the incarnation of Christ, the Lord did an awesome thing which no one was looking for. Verse three, God acted in a way which no one was expecting. For the first time, the absolutely unique, unseen God of Israel, whom Isaiah described in verse 4, has made Himself known and has made Himself visible. The God of whom no one had heard began to speak. And the Lord whom no eye had seen revealed Himself in flesh, as John would later write. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. He's been revealed and we have seen it and testify it to you and proclaim it to you that eternal life has come, which the father is, which was with the father and has been revealed to us. And the Lord has kept his promise in verse four to act for those who wait for him to meet those who joyfully work righteousness. But the Christmas story must ultimately lead to the cross story. For God's wrath was still kindled against sinners in verse 5. And no man could atone for his own sin. And that's why Mary was told in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Your son's name shall be called Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And Isaiah's question finally has an answer. Shall we be saved, Lord? Yes, we will be 
saved. Although we had become like one who is unclean in verse 6, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And though our righteous deeds were like unclean rags, Christ imputed His righteousness to us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If God had left us alone, we would have faded like a leaf being carried away by our sins. Yet Hebrews tells us that Christ became our scapegoat and He carried away our sins outside the camp and like a lamb led to the slaughter. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. We did not call upon His name in verse 7. And yet Jesus came to us not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and submitted to the will of God, even even submitting to the death on a cross. So that now we can truly say with Isaiah, because of Christ through faith in verse 8, God is now our Father. And we have adoption through Christ. He is our potter. And we are vessels of honor which He has formed for His glory. Jars of clay which He has filled with the glorious Gospel of Christ. And yes, verse 9 and 10 and 11 is true. That Jerusalem may have been destroyed and the temple was in shambles. But church, the true and better temple has come and He would allow Himself to be destroyed. And He would say, you tear this temple down, my body, and in three days it will rise again. And so the church marches on today in victorious power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're honest, if we look around at the world today, we cannot help but see that the mission is incomplete. And the world is still fallen. And the nations are still lost. And people are still in bondage. So if you'll excuse me for just a moment, I gotta take these gospel glasses off one more time, and I gotta put it, put on a new set of bifocals. I gotta take off the first advent glasses and put on those second advent bifocals because Christ is, Christmas is not just a time to look backwards. It is a time for us as a church to look forward. And as we look at our world, we cannot help but pray with Isaiah one more time in verse one. Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down again. Lord, please visit your people. And if he does come, are you ready? Are you ready if he comes again? I mean, Advent, we're celebrating Christmas and that he came once, but we're looking forward to him coming again. The people in Isaiah's day realized they were not ready. It would not have been good for them. And so I would urge you, church, as we look forward to the second coming, We need to also confess our sins and and explain and, and confess we have become like one who is unclean. And we need mercy today. And that mercy is found in Christ alone. The one who incarnated himself, the Godhead became flesh. He entered into our human existence. He pitched his tent with us. He lived among with us. He has died in our place. He has been raised 
from the dead. And so our eyes now look up from this text and look up to the eastern sky and wait for Christ to come again with the shout of an archangel, with the voice and the trumpet of God that He would take His people with Him and that the dead in Christ would rise and that cancer would be eradicated and that violence would be gone and that the nations would believe and that Christians all over the world would worship and that the adversaries would be struck down and that God would be glorified and fulfill the joy of His people for all eternity. And so with that, we look back and we also look forward and say, Oh Lord, that You would rip the heavens open this morning and come down. And we say with the church, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we... I am ready to worship. I am ready to sing. This is something worth singing about. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And joy to the world. The Lord is coming again. So Lord, make Your people ready. As we go through this Advent season, make us ready. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to confession of sin. And to cast ourselves only on Your mercy and Your grace which has been extended in the crucified Son of God. Oh Lord, let us worship with joy today. Lord, if there's a person in this room who would say that I am still unclean in my sin, Lord, would You be gracious today and bring them to repentance. A confession that Christ is Lord. And let them cast themselves upon You and Your mercy. Father, for the rest of us today, let us worship You with great joy and gladness. O come, all the faithful. O come, let us adore Him. We adore You today, Christ the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Church, let's stand and sing. As we've heard from God's Word, let's respond in joyful adoration and worship.